you can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to Women of Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today is a scientist of more than 20 years. Since completing her PhD in metallurgy and materials at University of Leeds and then Cambridge, she has shot up the UK science pyramid. She first joined the Science Museum as a researcher and exhibition developer before leaving South Kensington to join the Natural Environment Research Council. It is, however, at the UK Space Agency where she's embarked on the latest of her missions, forgive the pun. Her current role is International Director. She is a former vice chair of the European Space Agency and is on the board of directors for the US Space Foundation. When discussing space, she has said previously, space discovery conjures up images of missions to Mars, but it's all about their everyday impact to our lives. My guest today is Alice Bunn. So Alice, with that, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate you finding the time. And as I was saying just before we started recording, while we love having politicians and journalists on, it's nice to have a new career path on this podcast. And I don't think we've had anyone who has space in their job title yet. <laughs> well, it's about time. <laughs> now, on this podcast, we like to begin by just talking a little bit about what you did before your career. So you went to school in Shropshire. Was space something you were interested in from an early age how did you get that taste of it oh wow okay spoiler alert I was not one of those kids that kind of gazed out the bedroom window looking at the stars and dreaming of space it actually took me three strikes so the first time I had anything to do with space at all was when I was doing my PhD I had an experiment flown in space and I was completely blasé about that I have to say (laughs) gravity was getting in the way of the thing I was trying to study so it doing the experiment in space meant gravity was out the way that was fine by me second strike was working at the science museum and i spent a good stint there working in the space gallery and at the time to be honest the space gallery was just like the big cash cow of the science museum you know drawing all the visitors in so again you know yeah it was fine but it wasn't you know didn't really lit me up uh light me up rather The time when I got really hooked was when I started to understand the benefits that space programs can give back here on Earth. So in particular, Earth observation. So that's monitoring the Earth from space. You get this unique vantage point where you can study our own planet in ways that you really can't do any other way. So, for instance, over 50 percent of the measurements that we'll need to take to even understand climate change can only be measured from space. And that was my real like, wow, moment. This is really, really cool. So you didn't have a massive globe next to your bed and then uh, glowing the stars on your wall as a child? (laughs) No, I was totally, I was so lazy. I was so lazy. I just kept on studying the things that I was good at. And and I didn't even actually really take any decisions along the way. So for instance, I did maths, physics and chemistry as A-levels. I was going to say, you seem to have done very hardcore A-levels as someone who's like a classics philosophy English (laughs) yeah pretty much but you know those were the things that came easily to me so honestly it was so lazy so they came easily to me so I carried on studying them so lazy was I that I couldn't even decide between them at the end of my A-levels which is why I went on to study material science which is basically the merging of maths physics and chemistry so you went to study at Leeds and then after that you continued your studies at Cambridge am I right 
Yeah, that's right. It was very serendipitous, actually. So I really enjoyed the subject. I really wanted to do some research. I had no idea what doing a PhD really meant or what my choices were. And I was lucky enough in my final year at Leeds to join a conference that my supervisor was organising. I have to say, most of the speeches went completely over the top of my head. But one guy, a German guy, actually, gave a really, really inspiring talk and afterwards I got chatting to him and as I was chatting to him he started talking about how his research was coming to an end and then his industrial sponsor walked around the corner and then I started chatting to him and then he started talking about you know how we'd need to continue the research and then my to-be supervisor walked around the corner and started chatting to him and he said oh you should come and visit the lab in Cambridge sometime at which point I thought I need to put down my beer they're actually serious <laughs> I need to take this more seriously too yeah that was that and how did you find Cambridge amazing amazing I just never ever lost the feeling of being incredibly incredibly lucky just to study in this incredible place I mean it's so inspiring you just you know you just walk down the streets and there's these like earth-shattering discoveries have been made on every corner I mean it's just amazing amazing and beautiful totally beautiful and I just wondered you mentioned that you chose the subjects that came the most naturally to you or you know naturally you're best at but often we often hear about STEM subjects and you know how we need to encourage more girls to do them yeah. did you find that you know in this path and I suppose at university going on that very scientific course that it was more men than women or was it quite a equal mix oh yeah no it's totally male dominated <laughs> Absolutely, completely. And it was funny, actually, I once got asked in an interview, you know, why did you think that you could be successful in this, you know, male dominated career path that you've taken? And my instinctive answer was, it just never occurred to me that I couldn't be, which is so arrogant. (laughs) And I didn't mean it arrogantly at all. It was just, you know, I pretty most of my childhood was with single mum, right? So I watched my mum do everything. So why wouldn't I think women can do everything? It just didn't occur to me that there would be, you know, any obstacles along the way. And did you did you encounter any obstacles, do you think, because of your gender or like anyone thinking, oh, she's not actually here for the right class or or actually didn't? Yeah, honestly, a bit. Not that much, I have to say. When I was studying, not at all, actually. I think, you know, the kind of student environment as was you know was was very inclusive and i i didn't feel prejudiced against at all i think like many women or whatever you know kind of in my case i was a minority in the sector but of course there's all sorts of other different ways that you know one can be a minority and i think you know in that situation there's usually a point where you've been discriminated against in terms of you know someone expects you to be I don't know, bringing the coffee or doing the tea instead of chairing the meeting, you know, that that kind of thing, but not so much. And I'd like to think that actually standing out from the crowd a little bit does, you know, can also give you opportunities as well as, you know, prejudices along the way. I suppose fairly brief, but we do want details. Can you explain <laughs> how you go, obviously, from graduating from Cambridge, finding, you know, your passion to a degree you mentioned for example this, the museum that you worked at so what's your path to getting to working in the field of space yeah wow so um it'll make sense yeah. as I describe it backwards there was never a plan right <laughs> so it's all going to sound beautifully logical but there was never a plan I love my PhD I love doing research but 
frankly, most of my time is spent sat alone in a darkened room looking down a transmission electron microscope. And it's not really me, you know, like I kind of like the company of other people a little bit too much to do that job. And while I was at Cambridge, I did do lots and lots of kind of outreach. So in primary schools around Cambridge here, we used to, me and a bunch of us used to drive around in my grand's beat up old mini metro with kind of vats of liquid nitrogen in the boot and things like that. It was all very non-health and safety, great fun. So I really enjoyed that kind of outreach side of things, which is why I ended up at the Science Museum. So a lot of that being, you know, on the education and outreach side of things. And like I say, while I was at the Science Museum, I, you know, became aware of the tremendous power of space for everyday life. And that really, really gripped me. I thought it was amazing. It was like this big secret had been uncovered about the extent to which all our lives are enabled by these incredibly clever satellites you know, flying around in space. And it was particularly from the environmental perspective that I found it really fascinating. I found it fascinating that you can do, you know... You you can support incredible emergency response. You can support understanding of climate change, you know, meteorology, weather forecasts, pretty much 100% enabled by space data. So that really fascinated me. So that led me into the career working at the Environment Research Council. So looking at how we disperse our funding for environmental research using space. I had a mahoosive career break by most people's standards. So kind of five and a half years when my kids were little. And then I came back still working in, you know, environmental research from space, but doing it from the point of view of a government department and then kind of jumped around since then to end up where I am. I just I just want to ask just on taking the break for your children. Is it a bit tougher when you work in the science industry when you have that break? Because I know I have family members, you know, and obviously in certain subjects, things don't really change <laughs> but um, perhaps it sounds like a blunt way of putting it but in science I mean it feels like things are constantly changing so if you take a few years out you can come back and things have moved more in a further way oh yes and no because actually a lot of space you know the programs are speeding up now but you know particularly the big programs they are a long time in the making so you know I was out for that five and a half years and <laughs> Sometimes I came back and said, really? Have we have we still not launched that mission? Nothing okay. happened. Okay, <laughs> great. Yeah, I mean, obviously things moved on. <laughs> I was really lucky when I was in my career. So I took a career break, but I was able to kind of keep in touch with what was going on. So I went into the office a couple of weeks a year, which sounds like nothing. But actually, if you spread that out, it was remarkably effective as feeling like you're kind of still got your finger on the pulse a little bit. And you touched on it there, and I think it mentioned it in the introduction. So you're previously how you described, you know, that we often think about space as, you know, missions, Apollo films, but actually everyday impact on our lives. I wonder just for listeners and a little bit for myself, how you could explain, I suppose, what a day at things like, you know, space agency actually consists of and ha- how it relates to things that we are doing other than watching a space film. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's amazing, isn't it? Because space does conjure up that image. It's all, you know, rockets and astronauts and daring do and all that business. But actually, you know, I I quite often say, you know, you get to work in the morning when we used to go to work in the morning instead of working from home. But anyway, (laughs) you know, you've probably used space programs about six or seven times before you've even sat at your desk. You know, if you've looked at a weather forecast, if you looked at broadcast TV, if you've travelled on public transport, if you've used the satellite navigation facility in your car, it's really touching our lives all the time. So my, you know, my everyday job, as it were, is making sure that we are investing in the right kind of programs to support us 
person to support both those everyday life applications so all the things that are really powerfully beneficial to you know every man and woman on the street as well as those programs which are pushing the boundaries of our scientific knowledge you know exploring the outer reaches of the universe or taking the next steps back to the moon and beyond to mars and it's really balancing investment across those i do think the economic benefits of space is is often hidden so whilst you know to give you for instance in the uk the space sector itself turns over just under 15 billion pounds a year what those programs do is support economic activity in the uk up to a value of about 300 billion per year so it's a really kind of underpinning fabric if you like of everyday life so a, a day in the life in your current role what does that look like? Oh, a day in the life of my current role. Okay, let's pretend we're not in lockdown, but <laughs> a day. So I'm international well, lockdown director. So space, can it? Yes, exactly, exactly right. So international director. What that means in practice is I've got responsibility for our investment through into the European Space Agency. So that's working with 22 other different countries, making sure that we are all contributing to you know the next great space programs and I have to oversee uh, our contribution into that. So lots of talking to my counterparts in other countries, understanding how when we share costs of missions, how those missions will be made up, you know, which industries will be contributing which bits. I also have responsibility for space security. So that's recognising that now space is designated part of critical national infrastructure. So we are critically dependent on space and understanding what programmes we need to make more resilient to make sure that we can keep benefiting from those space services and space programmes. And then I'm also responsible for for kind of the new partnerships that we want to form outside of Europe, be that to support our mutual interests in pursuing science, national security or trade objectives. So, I mean, I love it. It's a truly, truly kind of global job. You know, we talk to over 100 countries have space programmes now, right? So I'm talking to lots of different countries all the time and trying to find our areas of common interest, really, where we're going to collaborate, how we're going to do it. Yeah, and you mentioned leaving Europe. So I, was, I suppose what I wanted to find out was what kind of the opportunities, but I suppose also some of the challenges for the UK and its space agency are at the moment. I mean, one thing that's been in the papers quite a lot recently is about Galileo, the satellite system in the EU and and I think there was at one point the UK was looking at having its own version of that and that now doesn't look like it's going to go ahead is that is that right uh, no uh, actually that program has just been reset oh so that program has just been reset so you know we we have ruled out participation in Galileo so that won't be happening for us anymore but we absolutely recognize that society as a whole is very dependent on position navigation and timing and there's plenty of opportunities to be had from from those fields so we are still looking at our own program we're looking at it from the perspective of you know where we need to get capabilities from space and where we also need to combine them with capabilities on the ground so you know that's a really exciting time for us I mean what I would say is I talked about European Space Agency so that's not an EU agency that's an R&D organisation and very often we work with them for access to you know these huge technical facilities they're huge we call them kind of shake and bake chambers right because if you imagine if you've got these space missions they have an incredibly tough environment they get you know shaken 
like crazy during launch and then they are chucked into a vacuum in space and then they have all these incredible you know temperature differences to endure so you need a lot of testing equipment and we don't have the scale in the UK yet and also we work through European Space Agency for access to technical expertise and sharing costs on common programs the EU had a whole load of programs which were more operational, right? So they are routinely providing services to support everyday life. And that's where I think the UK will be will be looking afresh. We'll be looking at, okay, we could do this slightly differently as we are for the navigation program and also in other areas too and potentially with different partners. Yes, yeah, so, and just so I almost make sure I'm understanding it properly myself. So Galileo were leaving yeah. and then there was some talk that we might try and have our own satellite constellation. Is, is that right? But now actually I was reading today in some of the papers that what we might be now doing is looking rather than a homegrown equivalent is looking to work with other countries. Would that be the right way or is that the direction we're now going in? There's lots of different ways we can do it. I think there will be a huge element of homegrown <laughs> to this. I mean, it all comes down to your requirements, right? So if you're looking for a system that is absolutely secure and gives you global coverage you're probably looking at a medium earth constellation of satellites if you're looking for largely doing what we do now for instance which is using the open american gps service but there's some situations where you want to have more confidence in the reliability or accuracy of that service then you can augment that with other technologies be they space-based or ground-based so there's all sorts of different variants that you can do so what we're going to be doing now is taking another look at those requirements and to be honest the requirements you know they, they keep popping up right <laughs> That's the trouble with space. <laughs> we're all using it all the time and most of us have no idea, right? <laughs> so we're doing that 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 check again to make sure we've really captured all the requirements that we need. Then we will look at what system that needs and then we will look at whether or not we will be developing that system entirely on our own or whether we could be sharing elements of that system with some of our key allies. Is it quite an exciting time then to be in your... I'm, I'm sure it's always an exciting time to be in space agency. Of course it is. Yes, but it feels as though it's a it's a changing point for the UK with some of this stuff, but partly because of Brexit. Yeah. So d does yeah. it? I suppose it puts more in your intro, maybe, but in, in a good way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think you know, I think, I hope that there is an increasing recognition around space as well. So it comes back to this point about you know, it's not all rockets and astronauts and daring do. I mean, it is rockets and astronauts and daring do, but it is also really, really supporting our everyday lives. And I think as that awareness of how much space contributes to our life increases, then inevitably, you know, there's going to be more interest in space. We're going to be more interested in having our own national capabilities. You know, you only go back sort of 30 or 40 years and there were really only two countries in space. It was really only the US and Russia. Now, like I say, over 100 countries with space programs, widely recognised as offering tremendous advantage for, you know, national security. And I mean that in a kind of civil context as well as defence. So I mean that and things like, you know, emergency responses and environmental management. So, you know, I think the opportunities are just, they are growing as we realise how important space is to our everyday lives. And then I just thought, um, you mentioned kind of territory and property in space a little bit, we were touching on, I was wondering, how does it work in terms of international cooperation when it comes to discovery in space? Because as you touched on to a degree, you know, it's 
it's not the territory of one state, but there's obviously lots of countries that want to, you know, be using it for charting reasons for data. Also, I mean, just even if you look at um, probably more of going to the film style space. So, you know, having the missions, you know, there's there's often a geopolitical prestige in that. So what does international cooperation look like when you're trying to work out what countries are doing what? Because as I mentioned in the introduction, you're not just on the UK side, you've advised both the European and the still the Americans to a degree. Yeah, exactly. It's really interesting. It's what I love about it. It's absolutely fascinating. Because if you think about there's so many different types of ways in which we kind of would like to or have to <laughs> cooperate internationally. So first of all, think about the operating environment. Okay. No one owns space. Yeah. And when you have these satellite missions in particular, everyone's whizzing around using the using the same operating environment. And unlike, you know, here on Earth. So my analogy here is always you can think of orbits around the Earth as like major roads around big cities. You know, so take the UK. If there's a crash on the M25, well, that's really bad news. But at the end of the day, we will be able to remove that broken vehicle and make sure that the road is cleared for other users in space. That's not true. Right. So in space, if there is a collision in space, the debris stays there. In fact, it doesn't really stay there. It keeps whizzing (laughs) around the Earth. I mean, the analogy is terrifying, right? If you imagine every time there was a crash on the M25, all the broken glass and bits of metal from that crash carried on speeding around the M25 at the speed it was when he crashed. That's that's kind of what happens in space. So it's in everyone's interest to make sure that doesn't happen, right? So it's in everyone's interest to make sure that we have the capability to have a really good kind of surveillance system of what's going on and make sure that we avoid those types of collisions. So that's a type, uh, that's an example of an international corporation where you might not even want to, but you really have to. Have have we had many (laughs) um, collisions like that? Oh, yes, we have. Oh, yes, we have. Yeah, Uh, not many. Not many, but we, we but we have had some, and you know the issue of debris in space is is of growing concern. It's an area where the UK wants to take some real leadership, actually, and we're going to, you know, pushing forward some programs where we can look at removing some of the debris from space because at the moment it does just keep circulating and, and those orbits are getting more and more congested and you know when I talk about debris in space I'm, I am talking about hundreds and thousands of, of pieces in debris in space so you know we are going to have to grip it it's a bit people often talk about it analogous with kind of climate change on earth really you know in the same way that we are now aware that we need to protect our own environment and atmosphere we are becoming increasingly aware that we need to protect that orbiting environment around the earth if we're going to continue to benefit from the programs so that's a real kind of needs must type of cooperation and then there's also the international cooperation where you know we come together we bring our capabilities together and we bring our cash <laughs> together to share costs on some of these bigger missions so typically there we might be talking about you know, things like the International Space Station, the big plans that we have for the Lunar Gateway, going back to the moon and onwards to Mars. You managed to successfully freak me out about the debris in space. So I was just wondering, <laughs> how do you go about getting it if if that was a mission? Would you have to would you have like a spaceship and you try and grab it or or do you have a cooler gadget? How does that work? Yeah, it's really interesting, right? There's all sorts of technologies being trialed. So, you know, there's a net. <laughs> Um, so you could like a fisherman's catch net. Then yeah. net. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. The most likely, and this this happens kind of naturally anyway, right? So infinitesimally slowly, debris in space is slowing down. 
Okay, and eventually it will slow down to the extent where it starts reducing in orbit and eventually it's likely to burn up on re-entry to the atmosphere. Although most things burn up, not everything burns up, but most things burn up. So, you know, one solution is just to give something a tiny little knock in space, which then pushes it down and encourages it to get into that burn up phase. Another, and this is more of a historical view, was to kind of push it out quaintly termed to a graveyard orbit so an orbit that isn't really useful for any space capability and but i think even there that's kind of that view is disappearing now because people recognize that you know we might not think we need that orbit now but who knows what we might need in the future so you know just pushing things out it's a bit like the landfill argument yeah just burying it in the ground probably isn't actually a long-term sustainable solution to the problem but increasingly, we're building into the design as well. So we're building into the design of missions. And we have those kind of guidelines set at the UN. So, you know, things like missions have to be able to safely deorbit after 25 years. That's not an exceptionally high ambitious target. <laughs> so, you know, we are trying to drive responsible norms of operations as well. So we make sure that we're at least not contributing any further debris. Now, um, I know you've got things to be getting on with, so I'm just going to ask you a few final questions. But And one of them is, this is a very basic question, so please forgive me, but <laughs> how worried should we be about black holes? <laughs> Not very. Just because, I mean, often like, you read about how actually a black hole could swallow everything, but that's not something that you'll be at all worried about. No, I do not. Black holes do not keep me awake at night. Okay, good to know. And then, <laughs> and then just, I found a poem. My sister sent me a poem this week, which I, which I wrote when I was eight, that, which, which is literally called Space. And it's like, wow. she sent it to me. And I, I mean, it's quite deep, to be honest. It's about um, the, the Milky Way and things, but it does have black holes in it. And I think it's put it fresh in my mind. You see, that just makes me feel like such a faker. Because I did not write a poem about space when I was eight. And I feel like people expect that of me. Yeah, it's about (laughs) nine lines long. So final thing on space, which is you mentioned kind of missions to Mars and things. What do you think in terms of, and I suppose this is the more kind of glamorous side of space, which is what people think about, you know, trips to the moon and things. What do you think realistically are are the new frontiers uh, which we can expect to see happen in our lifetimes? Oh, yeah. Gosh, in our lifetime. So we'll definitely get back to the moon, probably be building bases on the moon, probably be kind of harvesting the moon, for want of a better word. So the big thing at the moment is trying to make use of what we find in space for onward exploration. So, for instance, if we can either using some of the frozen water that we know exists on the moon or some of the moon rocks, if we can harvest oxygen from that, then that's something that will support our further exploration efforts so we can definitely expect to see more of that type of activity happening on the moon and then i think we're going to harness that for those longer missions to mars definitely in our lifetimes now the final thing i mean on this podcast we do ask everyone the same question to end the podcast Um, and we ask everyone what's the worst advice they've ever been given (laughs) that's a brilliant question oh gosh Worst piece of advice. So maybe 10 years ago or so, someone said to me, so yes, I work in a very, you know, male dominated world, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I I quite like bright colours and things like that. And someone said to me, you know, I think maybe you should think about toning down your dress sense a little bit. (laughs) 
I didn't take that piece of advice. And I love it. I love it. I've got countless, what do they call them? Kind of family photos when there's, you know, 50 people all lined up and every single one is a dark suit. And then there's this bright red dress in the middle and that'll be me. And you know what? It's really helpful because people remember you. I mean, like it's the greatest gift for networking. It's tricky for me because they all look like men in black suits whereas <laughs> I look like the woman in the red dress so they all remember me and I have a challenge to differentiate between them but generally <laughs> it's an advantage so I did not take that piece of advice and I'm glad I didn't. Great do you think they're suggesting you'd be taken more seriously if you dressed more demurely? Yeah probably. It's funny because we had just a po- other podcast we interviewed uh, one of Keir Starmer's new shadow cabinet this week Louise Hay but she was saying her worst advice is very similar to yours is basically people telling her to like tone down her outfits because she wears really bright clothes in the commons yes and she's like yeah (laughs) no no (laughs) I know I know it's ridiculous it's ridiculous it's one of the things and and it's funny actually I think I did it when I was I did it of my own accord kind of when I was younger probably before I had kids you know because I felt like oh god you know I'm only in my 20s and, you know, I need to fit in and I'd wear the dark navy suit. And I think I came back from, you know, having the kids and just thought, oh, Nick is to that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't wear what I like. <laughs> thank you, Alison. Thank you so much for finding the time today. Okay, not at all. Yeah, it's been good fun. <laughs>